Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Thankfully, I remembered to come up right now, right? One of these Sundays, it's, it's not a legit fear, phobia, but there is this fear one week I'm just going to be sitting there, just waiting with everybody, you know, before I realize that, oh, you should be up there. Not yet. <clears throat> and if you're near me, just help me in that moment, that morning. Um, this morning, we're going to continue going through James chapter 2, and we're going to finish James chapter 2. This is one of the most uh, controversial passages, portions um, of the New Testament, definitely of the book of James, but also of, of the New Testament. Uh, quite frankly, I believe this controversy is much ado about nothing. It is not, I believe, a, a thing. And, and the point is, the, the controversy is that James has said that true, genuine, saving, real faith always has works along with it, that prove that it is alive and it is not dead. Where this becomes difficult for some is that like awesome rock star people like Paul keep saying that, that you know, you, you are saved by faith alone. He says it over and over in so many beautiful ways. And so what gives? <laughs> which, which one of those is true? You know, are James and Paul really at odds with each other? Does Jesus have something to say about this? Does it matter at all? And the answer is yes, it absolutely matters. That's what we're going to be talking about today. After all, I can't imagine anything worse. I tried. I can't imagine anything worse than believing your entire life, your entire life that you are saved, that you have genuine faith and you have this confidence and you come to church and sing songs and you do all the right things and you believe you are righteous, that you are right before God, only to stand before God someday and him tell you that you are not saved, that you never were saved and that you're to blame because you deceived yourself about that. I don't think it could get any worse than that. And that's why I believe James is so passionate, even shocking, you know, even, even for our culture, a little bit shocking the way he, he presents this information. Even this morning, um, just saying outright, like, what you guys think is foolish. It's foolish. Now, to prove his point, uh, in James chapter 2, he presents these four case studies to persuade you, to persuade his readers and listeners that faith must have works. And that was a couple of weeks ago. Just I, I want us to go back and look very quickly at the first case study was verses 15 and 16 where he's talking about a Christian coming into church, professing faith. They know a lot. They come into church and they see one of their brothers and sisters that they're half-naked barely any clothes on, they're freezing, they're obviously starving, and that Christian's response is just to bless them and say, hey, uh, keep warm, buddy, like, get some food, you know, eat, be, be well fed, and then they just walk away. 
To which James says, no, actually, that is not faith, <laughs> right? I mean, even people out in the real world would help them. If you don't help your brother and sister in need, then your faith is dead. The second case study in verses 18 and 19 is somebody telling James, well, I have faith, you have works, I have my faith, works aren't really my thing, to which James replies, well, okay, that faith is two things. It is useless and it is demonic because demons believe like that, right? And so you have faith, faith without works is, is what we would call a faith that demons have. And this morning, we're going to look at the next two case studies in verses 20 uh, through 26, as well as a bonus case study this morning, uh, something I love talking about, and it's this, uh, we're going to look at the controversy between James and Paul. I, I think it's important that we take time and look at that as well. Now, what's interesting about uh, the sermon this morning is it's a little bit different in the book of James. The book of James is so preachy, so wonderful. I love preaching through the book of James, but this morning, we got to be ready. He's going to change it up a little bit, and he's going to introduce two narratives, two Old Testament narratives. In addition to introducing narratives, he's then also going to become really technical. And so just whatever you need to do to stretch out, like we're, we're going to go deep into this today. I'm, I'm excited about this. And our sermon title today is patriarchs, prostitutes, and the friends of God. Let me pray for us. God, mornings like today, I, I just simply want to pray that you are awesome, <laughs> Lord, because that is a, a true prayer, Lord. May all of us here understand your awesomeness, Lord, which means that you provoke awe, Lord, just awe that never ends and never stops. May we come to your word today, letting it transform us through its truth. May the awe we have, Lord, of your love for us, and you're telling us these things we need to know to bring us into relationship and bring us into friendship, provoke awe and repentance and love and works for you, Lord. And I ask that all of us would do this to the glory of Jesus, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to start by reading verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? All right, starting kind of soft, right? Now, uh, when I read this verse specifically... As I have done throughout reading the book of James, I believe that James is the biblical writer that I most wish had access to modern technology. I wish that James was a texter. I wish that James had access to emojis. Because when I read this, if you can imagine James communicating this with emojis as the rest of the book of James, like I think he would go crazy. Right? Like, angry face, right? Heart, I love you guys, but what are you guys doing? And he's getting angry and sweating, and I don't know what's going on, guys. Please listen to me. I am praying for you. Please listen to me. Don't be foolish. I love you. I think James would love emojis. Because his, you know, terms like he uses, like foolish, 
He's not being mean. This isn't hate speech. When James says foolish, he's not trying to put you down. He's using compelling speech. You need to listen to this. To not do this is foolish. It's get your attention speech. It's parents talking to their children's speech. I know we have children in service this morning, and you know, parents, they will often say, do this, don't do this, don't be foolish. And parents, we know that we do that out of love. And children, you need to know that your parents do that out of love. We know some things that we want you to know. And we were your age, and we know that it's difficult. And, and you believe, right, that you know everything. And you're wonderful. And you know a ton. But we know a little bit more. And we are actually on your side, Children, we are on your side. As James is here talking to this church, even calling them foolish. And so what we see now is James introduce case study three about Abraham, right? This patriarch. And we find this in verses 21 through 24. Was not... Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if James didn't have their attention by calling them foolish, he certainly has their attention now. Right? There's this Jewish Christian audience. You bring up Abraham, like that, aside from Jesus himself, bringing up Abraham, everybody knows about Abraham. You know, how dare you bring him up, James? Are you going to use him for your argument? And he is. And he's referencing this example from Genesis chapter 22, where the Lord tests Abraham. He says he's going to test Abraham by, by telling Abraham, go sacrifice Isaac up on this mountain. Abraham loves Isaac, right? That's his, his, first, real, his first real son with his wife, loves him. And the Lord says, go sacrifice, make a burnt offering of Isaac up in the mountain, to which Abraham, he does, he goes up the mountain three days' journey to do this work. And it's a lot of work. It's a three days' journey. It's creating this, um, to set on fire, creating this altar. And he's about to literally do the work of sacrificing Isaac when the angel of the Lord calls out, stop, don't do that. Don't sacrifice Isaac. I see that you were going to do that. Don't do that. And because of Abraham's faith and his work, the Lord is so pleased with it. He's like, I know that there's nothing that you have above me, not even Isaac. And the Lord goes on to bless again Abraham. He's going to do this thing through Abraham, which we know that he does because we are here this morning, right? And it's awesome. It all, it all goes back. Even us meeting here this morning goes all the way back to the faith and works of Abraham and being blessed through him. And you may ask yourself, well, how is sacrificing Isaac, like how is that faith? He kind of just sounds like he's a horrible dad, right? I mean, if we're being honest, we can, we can love the Lord and not kill our son. 
So what is the faith aspect of this here? And we find the answer in Hebrews eleven nineteen, where it says he, uh, speaking of Abraham, considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. God had already told Abraham in Genesis 17, he's going to bless Isaac, right? Isaac was a blessing himself to Abraham, but the Lord is going to bless Isaac, and he's going to multiply Isaac and his offspring after him. Which means, if we're getting technical here, in order for that to be true, Isaac can't die. Right? Isaac can't die. How, how does the Lord keep his promise if Isaac is dead? And so, sort of, you know, we have that blessing of having, having Hebrews eleven nineteen to look through that lens to know that Abraham, yes, I'm sure it was a tough journey. Either way, I mean, that is a horrible journey. But he goes up that mountain believing the promises of God. He has faith in God's promises, which means even though he knows in his heart, we, we know by his action, by his works, he is going to do this, but he knows Isaac is coming back down. Right? That is faith. That is crazy. This whole sequence is, he doesn't know how it's going to work. He knows the Lord is wonderful and great and keeps his promises. He doesn't know what it's going to look like, but he knows Isaac is coming back because God doesn't lie. That is faith. What if Abraham would have said no? You ever, think, you ever read Bible stories and just be like, would we still be here today? Like, what does that look like if Abraham says no? Would he still be considered a hero of the faith? I don't know, right? But isn't it interesting? He's a hero of the faith by his works, right? It's the works that make him like this awesome example. James says Abraham's faith was completed by his works, and not only that, because of his faith and works, he is both righteous and justified. Which leads to the next uh, logical questions. Well, what are righteousness and, and justification? Are those things that we want? Yes. Are they the same thing? No. <laughs> Can you be one and not the other? Yes. And so, very briefly, I want to look at justification and righteousness because... Um, Man, we could have like a year-long series on either one, so we're going to get the very small. So forgive me if I miss some beautiful element of both of those, and they are magnificent theological realities. And so first, looking at justification. Justification is the legal acquittal of guilt. Even in our culture today, now, Philip um, Evison, I, I like his definition for one important reason, but he says this, the doctrine of justification concerns God's gracious judicial verdict in advance of the day of judgment, pronouncing guilty sinners who turn in self-despairing trust to Jesus Christ, forgiven, acquitted of all charges, and declared morally upright in God's sight. So, it's a wonderful definition. And the reason I think it's a wonderful definition out of me trying to summarize it and looking at definitions is his concept of faith, right? Because it's about faith and works, and you're like, well, the word faith isn't, it isn't there, 
What he says instead is that we have a self-disparaging trust. That is faith. So what that means is we don't trust ourselves. Like we, we, we are the last person. I know me. I know I'm the last person I'm going to trust to save myself. My faith, the first thing my faith does is rule me out of saving myself and, and rules in favor of completely having faith in Jesus to save me to have faith in Jesus that he justifies me so that we lean completely on the righteous life of Jesus, which leads to righteousness. Righteousness, which we could define as purity, uprightness, holiness. I usually just remember what righteous is right living, right? Right living. Righteousness is... is being in right standing before God. You can also, just thinking about the word right, you have the right to stand before God. I mean, it, it, it's not being embarrassed, right? If you're righteous, you're not hiding anything, right? If somebody's trying to hide something they've done, they are not righteous. Now, righteousness, unlike justification, uh, is not a moment. Righteousness is a lifestyle, and there's going to be days, and it's going to be okay, where you're not going to be righteous. But praise God that you will still be justified, right? And so you will have justification in Jesus on the day that you are not righteous because Jesus was awesomely, perfectly righteous for us. Again, this, this isn't our righteousness. It, it is the righteousness of Jesus that saves us what Martin Luther and R.C. Sproul called alien righteousness. It's alien to us. It's impossible for us to be this righteous. It is so alien to us. We need it to be imputed to us in Jesus. Faith itself is a righteous work, right? I mean, that, that is the first righteous work, faith. Righteous actions and works are the result of being born again. Otherwise, we can't do them. And so again, really technical stuff. You guys okay? You with me? A lot of technical stuff. Beautiful theology here. But all that to say, this is James's argument. James's argument for faith and works is, how can you all say you were born again if your new life looks like your old life? It's like, you're deceiving yourselves. You're being foolish if you think being a Christian looks the same as not being a Christian. You have the alien righteousness of Christ in you. You're not going to be righteous every day, but people are going to notice that you are definitely changing. You are being transformed into being like Christ. Now, there's one more word in this case study, three, that I want to look at that we can't miss, which is in verse 23. And that is the word friendship. Friendship. The result of being justified in Christ and being righteous before God is that we are friends with God. Don't lose sight amidst technical words and judicial words and theological concepts that the whole point of the coming of Christ and his righteous life and his death for us and his resurrection to prove everything he said was a million percent accurate, the whole point of that is to bring us into relationship. It is to bring us into friendship. 
It's not just to wipe away our guilt, but it's to, to bring us before him, not just to stand there, and, and that's great just to stand there, but he's, he's bringing us in. He is calling us. He, he's pulling us towards him to be friends. Like, God is an awesome friend. He didn't come just to save us. He came to know us. He came to walk with us, to love us, to be the most incredible friend that we have ever had. If you think about it, I mean, Abraham, he's called a friend of God for, because he was going to sacrifice Isaac. And, he, and the Lord didn't even let him sacrifice Isaac, but still said, because of that, you are a friend. And God himself did not hold back Jesus. Sacrifices Jesus to become your friend. It's incredible. Now, being friends with God sounds great. And I would encourage you, if that's a foreign concept to you, well, I don't know what it feels like to be friends with God. I mean, God is holy. I mean, yes, absolutely. But God is also saying that he wants to be your friend. And so I would just encourage you if, if you feel like you could be better friends with God or you want to know what that feels like, there's two ways to do it. The first is through faith, and the second is through works. Pray to God, believe in God's going to answer you. God, be my friend. Show me what it's like to have you as my friend. And then start acting like it. Start doing these works and see if God isn't walking with you. That's when you experience the friendship of God. When you take steps in faith, doing stuff he's asked, and you, and you realize that he is completely with you, he's ahead of you, he loves you, and you're doing this for the glory of Jesus, to become more like Jesus because he loves you and has done everything for you to bring you into this friendship. But okay, why mention that? in this very technical <laughs> part of this, this chapter about works. Well, you know, my friends don't tell me that I have to work to be their friend. But if we go back to the words of Jesus in John 15, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus says, the best friend ever, you are my friends if you do what I command you, works. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And so the gospel isn't just about Jesus reconciling us to God, which is awesome. We are cool with God. We have nothing to be embarrassed about. We are cool with our creator. But he's also made us friends with God. Friendship that grows through faith and works. And now perhaps, possibly, like some of the people who read and heard this letter, you, you, you're going to push back a little bit. And you're going to say, not fair. How is that fair? Abraham is your example? Dude, come on. Right? And so, he's the hero of the faith. He's the patriarch. He's Abraham. That's a high bar to set. That's not fair. And I think maybe James, a lot like Paul, always assumes the next argument from, from the person who, who he's listening to. And so he introduces a very short case study four in verse 25. And it says, in the same way, so in the same way as Abraham's faith and works, 
Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And so James goes from patriarch to prostitute, to the highest position, to, to basically the lowest position. From a friend of God to one who was a prostitute to the enemies of God. Now again, we have this narrative story that, that, that James is using from Joshua chapter 2, where uh, Joshua has sent spies into the land just to spy it out um, so that they could take it over. God has told them to go in and, and take a look and to take it over. Um, these spies, I'm not saying whether they were good spies or not, but they're about to get caught. At some point, they mess up. <coughs> they meet Rahab, who Rahab actually hides them. Rahab knows who they are. It's not a mistake. She knows who they are, and she hides them. Why does she do this? Well, first, as we're talking about, she has faith. She has faith. Well, where did she get faith from? Does she have the scriptures? Is there a priest in, the, in this? And it's basically like a military like institution. It's a very a, a military complex, Jericho is. Um, which you need your prostitutes there. That's, I'll leave that there. But how does she know? She's heard people talking about God. She's heard snippets here and there that God, he dried up the Red Sea. The Amorites, you know how the Amorites aren't there anymore? We saw that smoke when the Amorites were destroyed. It was that God. And so she has no formal education. She has sort of rumors about this God, but enough to have faith in this God. So much faith, that, that, and such a genuine faith, that, that, that she then has works, and she hides these spies. Without hesitation, without reservation, she hides these spies. When she does that, she commits treason. I mean, she could be killed for this. Her family could be killed for this, and she just does it anyway because she has faith that God is going to destroy the city. And she has faith that at the same time, God can spare her and her family, which is exactly what happens. Destroys the city and saves her. And so, church, we may not have the faith of a patriarch, Right? We may not have the faith of Abraham, but do we even have the faith of a prostitute? She committed treason. She put her life on the line with her works for her faith. Now, I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but I believe it's entirely possible that even meeting like this someday is going to be treason. What are we going to do? Are we prepared to do that? Is our faith and works in a place where we are going to meet as a church when the government says that is treason? When it can cost us our welfare, when it can cost us our jobs, when it can affect our family or, or, or prison time? Are we ready to do that? Or are we going to hesitate? Or are we going to just walk away completely? Or are we going to act are we going to work? Are we going to believe that God is sovereign? How impactful was this faith of Rahab 
And I, I, I imagine there's probably a lot of you who, she's your favorite character in the Bible, I'm guessing. You don't have to raise your hand because I know she's a prostitute. She's a great character, come on. But think about the impact of her faith. This city is destroyed. She is saved, and her family is saved. And so parents and grandparents, think about how impactful your faith is and how it's going to affect your family. The only thing that might save your children is the expression and works of your faith right now. This is a great practical example of that. Rahab would then go on to marry Salmon, or Salmon, and become part of the ancestry of Jesus. How cool is that? The answer is very, it's very cool. <laughs> a prostitute of the enemy of God by faith and works becomes part of the ancestry of our Savior Jesus. It's awesome. It's fantastic. And so do you think that God notices who has faith and works in him? Do you think God notices who has faith and works in him? Yes, absolutely he does. And what does he call those people? Friends, yes, he calls them friends. That, that is the power of faith and works. Now James ends case study four with a little bit of a shocking picture again with love. Uh, this true illustration of works in verse 26, faith and works. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And I don't think I need to explain that. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, just think about that. Faith without works is like having a body without life. Now, I mentioned that we would have one more case study this morning a bonus one, case study five, where we're going to look at James versus Paul, grudge match, works versus faith. Now, I am confident this morning that we as a church have understood James's very sweet, gentle uh, argument, right, that, that you have to have faith and works. The true saving faith has faith and works. The issue for some is that Paul uses the exact same terms as James, only Paul says, you are saved by faith alone. In fact, mentions multiple times, you don't need works. What gives, <laughs> right? And so, let's look at some of these verses. There is so many, but I just picked three to show Paul's side of his argument. Romans 3.28 for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justification and faith. Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because the works of the law, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. What's happening here? And then listen to this, Romans 4, uh, verses 2 and 3. For if Abraham, he pulls out Abraham, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
And so Paul brings out Abraham for the same like, argument. You have what appears to be two different arguments and both using Abraham as the, as the example. It can be very confusing. Can you imagine somebody new to the faith going through the Bible, reading through all of Paul's epistles and then reading James afterwards and just being, what? <laughs> How does this work? Or maybe even, even right now you're at a point in your life where you're thinking about faith and works and, well, how could this possibly work? I don't understand how it works. Is there a conflict here? The short answer is no. Right, no. The slightly longer answer is that James and Paul are writing to two different types of people. They have two different audiences who are on two different points of their walk with the Lord. Paul is fighting against this idea that you can work for your salvation. That's the people he's talking to. They're not saved. He's saying you can't work to be saved. James, on the other hand, it has a completely different audience who's not doing anything. He's not going to tell them that you don't have to work. They're like, cool, we're already not working. You say, no, you have to work. You guys have to work if you're saved. Paul's argument is evangelistic in nature. He wants them to be saved. They're not saved. He's saying, come, be saved by faith. Be saved. You want to be saved. You don't have to do works. Just have faith and you are saved. As were James, he's on the other end of faith. His audience has been saved. They say they're saved and he's trying to tell them, okay, well, act like it. Act like it, right? These people need to know what it looks like. And so they are, there, there is, is no contradiction there. Does that make sense? Right? They're, they're just on two different parts of a faith walk with two different types of people. They are in harmony with each other. Salvation is by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Works is the life of our faith. Without it, we're just a body that has no spirit. We're just a demon who has faith and no actions. So don't believe the memes or lazy critics who say that the Bible isn't reliable because there's these contradictions, man. It contradicts itself. Nonsense. The same Paul who argued, right, the same Paul who argued that, that it's by faith alone also argues when he writes to different churches who are already saved, you now need works to prove that you are saved. And I have two examples here of that. This is Paul, again, the same guy, Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like we were saved to have works. That's the whole point of this. The point wasn't just to save us. Otherwise, we just disappear when we are saved, accomplished, ascend. No, we're saved to now get to work. And so in closing, most importantly, is the fact that what James says and what Paul says is only repeating what Jesus has already said. One example is Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father in heaven. It wasn't about just saving us, right? Our works, for one, they prove that we are saved. They complete our faith. They bring us into this great friendship with God. But our works are also for people who aren't even Christian, so they could see them and understand the gospel. This person I used to know, they weren't the coolest person, nicest person. What's up with them? They're becoming so nice, it's annoying what's going on in their life. And so our works become light into this dark world that glorify Jesus. And people who have been saved love to do that because they love Jesus. Jesus is the hero, right? He's our friend. Why wouldn't we want to do that? It does us no good to articulate how Jesus and James and Paul talk about righteousness and justification if we are not friends with God. Like, what's the point of it all then? What are we doing? Is that faith? No, we do all these things to then become friends with God. In our lives, there's two potential friendships that we have. Now, I know we have potential for many friendships, but there's two potentials in this lifetime for friendships, and we have to choose one of them. One is to be friends with the world, and the other is to be friends with God. Both of those friendships are defined by faith in them that is shown through obedience and works to them. You are friends with one of them, the world or God, and I can tell you which one you are by the way you act. Now, one of these friends will kill you. One of these friends has died for you. Church, choose this day who you will serve. Let me pray for us. Lord, I can't help but smiling knowing that you have befriended us. Knowing what we deserved uh, um, before your court, before your holy righteous judgment there's no way any of us could ever be justified if we had lifetime upon lifetime and lived as great as we could could we ever be righteous before your presence but we thank you that in Jesus and his righteous life that we are justified forgiven of our sins that we could stand in your presence without being ashamed. We have Jesus' perfect life that you see in us, Lord. And there's nothing we could do to thank you enough, Lord. May all of us, Lord, know what it means to be your friends, Lord, by doing the things you've asked us to do to bring us closer to you and for those same works to be a light to those who are still in darkness who need your light and your friendship, Lord. They don't need more friends on social media. They need to be friends with their creator, with their holy God. May you use all of us in this church for that end always, Lord. And we ask this in your holy, perfect name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.